Welcome to Scores and Pours with sommelier Joe Mott and radio host Ms. Emily Reese and classical music jazz extraordinaire. Today, on this episode, we're going to interview John and Jenny Toole. They are great breeders of cold-hardy hybrids, and Lord knows if there are some other hybrids, and there's also apples, so many different agricultural products, at the University of Minnesota Arboretum. What do you have to say, Emily? Because there's something about audio, I think. <laughs> well, first, I want to tell you about the music that you'll hear. We had all these great intentions to talk about, talk about music during this episode. We just didn't get around to doing it. So the music you'll hear is music that Jenny Tool sent us as being some of her favorite jazz. Other audio notes, we were recording outside, and it's really difficult to have a quiet space outside. So you'll hear the highway that's right next to us. And you'll hear other sounds, such as the bird squawker. This one is particularly um, powdery mildew susceptible, so it does have... Um, that's a bird squawker. We're trying to keep the birds out of here. So what it, what it is is like predatory birds. Because oh. <laughs> we don't need that going out, right? I mean, how often is that going to... It goes yeah, off more every than random... Okay. <laughs> I'm going to turn it off. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> And without further ado, we should introduce these guys because we, we in wine, I feel like you just jump right in and go when you get excited. Uh, so, Emily Reese, hello, how are you today? I'm great. Sommelier Gilmont, it's good to see you. We are out in the field here at the University of Minnesota Arboretum, not stuck in our studio space, which is a blessing, even though it's like 89 or 91 degrees or something Fahrenheit. And we are here with John and Jenny Toole, who, how, how do we even address, what are the proper titles? Because I know that you probably wear a few different hats around here. You can call us farmers. Okay. <laughs> We're researchers. Technically, our, our, our job titles are researchers. Um, but we are farmers. We love the farming aspect of it. It's really fun to be out here in whatever weather. So I guess that makes us farmers. Yeah. Right. For the university. Yeah, we're uh, we're we're working on the, um, the University of Minnesota's grape breeding project, which is head up by Matt, Dr. Matt Clark, and uh, we our job is to take care of the vineyards and manage the vines out here, and assist with all the breeding aspects and development of brand new grapes that you can't find anywhere else except for right here. It's just like uh, the apple program, you know, they got all the cool apples that have come out over the years. We're doing the same thing just with grapes. And we did have a commercial vineyard for a while. Actually, it was a long while. It was, what, 10 years we had the Oakshire Vineyards? Yeah. Um, but then we had two polar vortexes take it out for us. So, And it was up north. It was where John's parents have their farm. So we we have that aspect, too. We're, we're also had to do it, you know, with our own money and um, sell to the wineries, which was really fun. So we have that, we have a, kind of an all-around experience of, of winemaking and wine growing. And Before you were here... What were you what were you doing and what what led you to be working for the University of Minnesota? My background is just growing up on a dairy farm uh, with a big plant and gardening interest all my life. So that sort of led me on a path toward biology and then specifically like more plant biology. I took all the plant classes that I could, but I didn't go on a hort path, which I maybe wanted to do, but I just didn't really know about it at the time. So I wound my way around once I was done with school with college, I uh, went to Germany spent a full year on the Mosul working with the Riesling grape and uh, in a beautiful town called Seltingen. And after that, 
I came back to Minnesota knowing that the university has something going on with grapes and maybe breeding. I didn't know exactly what it was. So I just kind of gave them a cold call when I came back home. And this was 2004. And I said, hey, can I come out and volunteer at least and help prune the vines? You know, I want to do something. And then I was going to make another leap to another country or something and keep doing this kind of grape uh, business somehow. But they're like, yeah, well, you don't even have to volunteer. Maybe we have a job for you. You can start as a temporary casual worker or something like that. And I'm like, well, great. You know, what does it pay? Like, oh, next to nothing. But <laughs> it, was, it was all good. That um, was like 17 years ago. Yeah, so I got my start <laughs> in that and pretty quickly... Um, was able to become the vineyard manager out here and just help grow the success of our varieties, um, which have been in place. And this, this whole breeding program has been around for a long, long time. In fact, the history of the Horticulture Research Center here dates back to 1908, um, which has varied uh, different points of interest depending on, you know, apples have always been a main thing to do breeding with. I would say they had a strong point with other smaller fruits like plums and a little bit to do with cherries. But grapes have always been in the background, sort of rolling, not always with a wine focus in the early years. It was more like juice and jellies. And it wasn't more until about the late 70s, early 80s that they started taking this real wine-focused kind of approach to the breeding here. And since then, we've developed a lot of cool varieties. And we've also uh, continued to work with table grapes and a lot of different varieties. Um, but yeah, it's been a kind of a varied path. And somehow I got lucky enough to uh, meet Jenny also through this job. So I came out here for a tour and then never left. <laughs> Picked up the tour guide. <laughs> yeah, she, was, she was on a, well, tell them you were on a... I, I'm actually a professional chef by trade. So I, was, I trained at the La Cordon Bleu and I came out here. I was in a food and wine pairing class. And the instructor was a volunteer out here with John. So he brought us out. And it was one of those lightning bolt moments. Like I saw this guy and I was like, oh my God. And like, I really went home that day and told my mom I was going to marry this guy. And then here we are 15 years later. So incredible. yeah, <laughs> it worked out. Yeah, um, but we, you know, I actually started in, like I was supposed to be an engineer like all the rest of the, the men in my family. So I disappointed my dad and then ended up in the Air Force. And then from there, I went into to culinary school after that. I was actually managing a restaurant and some things in the restaurant business and then went and got my culinary arts degree. And then I met this guy and I did work in the restaurant industry for a while. And then 2008 happened. It's pretty bad. I lost my job pretty quickly. Um, and then a job opened up with John and we've been doing this now for 15 years together every day. All day. Yes. Yeah, people bet. are blown away by, but he's just really fun. So we have a really good time out here and we get to learn all this stuff together. So So can I ask with you know a lot of grapes out there that are supposedly boring, like you know, Chardonnay, Melon de Bourgogne, sure. Pinot Gris, what I'm finding is the more and more natural wine I've drank over the past ten years, the more I love those grapes and I just think they're boring when they're made even like the best burgundies, you know, when they're made. So Chardonnay out here is one of my favorite ones for eating. Okay. It is nothing like, I mean, they don't ever really capture what that tastes like as a, as a ripe Chardonnay grape. Mm -hmm. It's floral and fruity and just heaven on earth. 
and I've yet to have a Chardonnay that compares to how the fresh fruit takes. Really? I mean, I, I prefer an unoaked Chardonnay mm -hmm. just because I don't need all that crazy butter, you know, um, theater butter, popcorn, whatever flavors. Mm -hmm. I like it in a more natural state, but nothing compares to how good that is when you, when you eat it just fresh off the vine. So incredible. It's incredible, yeah. So do you, do you make you know, wine out of many different grapes here? Because I saw, I saw all the different um, demijohns in a picture that someone sent me. We make about 100, well, in our, I think, in our heyday, we made like 140 wines one year. So it was a lot. It was ridiculous. So now we sit somewhere between like 60 and 100 wines every year. And some of them are very small batches up to a couple gallons. Um, so yes, we, and then we go and we taste those wines in the, in the spring. Um, to determine which ones are are going to be um, further evaluated and are tasting better. When John and I started this, it was a lot of like very um, hybridy wines. So it was like single generation crosses from wild grapes, and it would be like blue. It'd be so dark. Those were some of the worst wines I have ever had in my entire life because it like it literally there's so much acid in it. It's just burning your teeth. It's burning. So we're actually finally taking the step away from that and getting it to more complex complexity because we're adding new like European grapes to it. We 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 have some Spanish grapes. We have a decent amount of Italian grapes now. So we're really starting to incorporate that and they're um, the cold hardiness is there as well. So it's really fun to be able to 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 taste some things that are stepping in the right this direction you know the the european style and i i need to clarify when you say adding this you're you don't mean blending one to the other you mean when you're creating the specific yeah crosses. so we take the european grapes and we cross them into some of our grapes like our newest grape itasca um, we have used that quite a bit now in the our crosses but we've done it a lot with um the european grapes and those crosses are now working we have another red grape that we've been using a lot with, with Vinifra, and it's a lot of really fun thing, the things that are coming out of it. Right in our last year or two, we're really discovering stuff. It's actually working. It's cold hardy, pretty clean, you know, and then getting some more complexity of flavors. So, Especially some of the, um, like, northern Italian reds and whites, they seem to have a little bit more cold tolerance because of their elevation. So blending some of that stuff... Uh, Breeding-wise, has been really working out for us. Which red grape that you said? Oh, we got this red grape that we love when we're blending. Which one? Well, Mencia. Oh. I, I don't say it right. It's Mencia, right? It's sure, but it's, Mencia. It's, it's, Mencia it sounds really weird. The, it sounds weird. But um, we have used that now. We've used what else was the Rafasco? Lagrain. Lagrain. Oh. And Taroldigo. Yeah. Um, um, Carignan. Yep. Carignan worked out really well. That was a really good one. Um, so there's there's a Rifasco type that we have. So that's that's been panning out pretty nicely. Usually, um, Grenache. What's the other one? We use we have a really great, beautiful cluster in the other field with that's half Grenache. So we're very excited about that one. That's I love Grenache. So it's gonna be. So you're growing them so that you can cross them to try and find things that'll work in cold weather? Yes. Cold weather, they need to be disease resistant because I'm an asthmatic and we don't like spraying out here. We don't want 
people to have to spray more than they're already doing. Um, so we really want cleanliness. Cold hardiness is really important for us because um, Marquette has gone out in the world and it's not the, the hardiest thing or it hasn't panned out as well as it should have. Um, so that's really, really important to us. Um, but then complexity. We need more tannin in, in some of our grapes and away from hybrid flavors. Despite the fact that cars and trucks are blazing by us, I would say nature is probably a pretty good marital therapist. Yes, you know, no right? kidding, just... right? It's really funny because we do a lot of help in vineyards, and it's, it's, it's a lot of couples, and we can tell immediately from get, getting in there like whether or not these people should be working together in that vineyard like there's a lot of like disagreements and so we've become like the the vineyard slash marriage counselors like I'll take one and he takes one and then we yeah, try to like get them to come back together in the middle so it's yeah we usually part and then we and then we bring them back hear around. both stories <laughs> and then we come around and then we yeah. now we know why you guys aren't agreeing on these techniques you're doing you know but we patch that up, and then they're good, to, good to go. So. <laughs> well, speaking of agreement, because crosses have to agree with each other, right, in order to not only survive in the vineyard well and be cold hardy here, but also to then breed good either eating grapes or good wine. So when you're deciding on which grapes to cross, obviously there's some sort of backstory to it, right? Like you you know Lagrine well, and you know Marquette well, and you. But are there some that you're like, you know? Try Let's just try this yes, and see what happens. Absolutely. And has that worked? And if so, give me an example. We had a baby vine. It was a seedling. So it was literally its first year of life. But there were only two of them. And the, the background of it was at Seeger. Seeger and... Seeger Reba with... So a muscat another, grape again. Another muscat grape yep. that we have on the property. So, so we, we had like the tiniest cluster on the very bottom of it. And we were like, oh my God, let's emasculate it and just slap something on there and see if it works. And it did. And then we ended up, how many more, how many did we get up there? I don't remember. There, there might be 10, 10 vines that came out of this. But it was just like one of those, like, here we are, we're seeing this, let's do this. And it seemed to work. So. And what, when you, when you are putting together, like, how do you, can you explain for our listeners how you actually go about crossing two grape varieties? Yeah, it's, it's a fairly simple idea. Um, you're bringing these two different grapes together. Um, it's what would happen in the nature anyway, but we're just doing it in a controlled manner so that we selectively put the pollen on that we want. So grape flowers, first of all, they're blooming in June, okay? And different species bloom at a certain time. So that's one of the blocks of how we can get these crosses to be made. Because they have to be blooming at the same time. Correct, yeah. Some species will bloom real early and then others a little bit later and then Amongst all the hybrids, there's a huge variation as well. So you have to kind of be flexible when you're thinking about making crosses because you choose one vine to be the mother and you choose the other vine to be the father. Um, that may not work because of when they're blooming. But if you're willing to switch that around, you can collect the pollen from that one and then that can become the father and you can put it on the other one that would have been the father and now that could be the mother. So 
being... But we do have a plan going yes. into this. It makes it sound like we're just doing this willy-nilly. You know, we're, we, I, I'm actually literally writing down crosses as we're going through all year long. Like, I'm like, oh my God, we should take this one and we should put it with this one. And actually Colin, who you met, he like puts them in his phone for me. And I'm like, take this one down and take this one down. And then I'll take all those probably right, right, right when we start tasting the wines again and then write them down and, and you know, like come formulate a plan. So then when we do go out in the first couple days, we're like, I'm going to check like when something's getting close or when's this clo- this getting close. And then getting, once you- Getting close to flowering. To opening, yes, to opening up and flowering. And, but we've been doing this for so long that I have an idea, like, I have a really good idea. Like I can look at something and be like, well, that's like a week. That's like two weeks. That's this, that's this. So after a lot of time, it's a lot that I keep in this crazy brain of mine. Um, it is. It's amazing. I mean, how much you, she can keep all these like nuanced flavors and ideas about all the different grapes. Cause we have well over 15,000 vines on this property, different you know, grapes. different ones. What? Not even 15,000 different grapes at, at any given moment for sure. This is 200 right here. So in, and we've got a lot of these fields and there's a, we make a lot of crosses. So what was it this year? We made like 40 crosses. Do you forget your children's names? <laughs> like how, how do you keep 15,000 grape varietals flowering I times? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's just something that just stays in there. And like it, it really does come with the more you're out here, the more you take it in. But then John and I, we touch these vines. How many times would you say? 40 times a year, easily, each one of them. We prune them, so John and I know, like you, you begin to kind of treat them like children because we, they're all different. We have to treat them all different. John and I can tell if we walk up to it. If, if we didn't prune the vine, we know who else did. You know, like it's it's gotten to be that much. Like, or if I can tell if he pruned it, or he can tell if I pruned it. It's it's crazy, but it's it's the more you spend with it, it's it's observation, it's details. And for some reason, I just keep it all up in here, this crazy brain. I wanted to back up with, just to clarify the process for listeners. So you're pollinating, and but how are you actually physically doing this in a controlled setting? Is, is it a matter, is it like micro, on a microscopic level? Is it a petri dish level? Like what, how, how are you doing that? So what we're doing is we're picking individual flowers on whatever, um, say we're using Itasca. So he, so we will come up to it, and we, you're, you're really looking for the best flower. So something that's kind of opening already is gonna. It's like an indication that it's ready to be, to be emasculated. And so we, we have to go in. We have to wash our hands with alcohol just to make sure there's nothing on it. I mean, literally, I'm spraying my hands with alcohol all day for two weeks. So it's a really fun way to dry your hands out, but. Once you start emasculating, we have to take all the caps off. We use little tweezers and you have to remove all of these little guys along with all the male parts. So the stamens here, yep. yeah, the white part that are on these stalks or filaments, you can see they got all those little anthers. Usually there's like five to six that swirl around. And this, mm-hmm. is, this is a pheno. Okay. And then in the center there, you can see the pistil that little white kind of round thing, that's the stigma, the sticky portion, that's what's gonna collect pollen. So if we let this flower cluster do this naturally in the open, the wind is gonna knock pollen from that anther, which is in real close proximity to that stigma, and it's gonna land on there, right? And it's gonna self-pollinate. Or other pollen could be blowing in and do the same work for us. Bees or whatever. Yeah, bees can land on there a little bit. 
But what we want to go and do is do a controlled emasculation process where we, we pinch all of those off. And we use, the, we use tweezers to do this. So if you got a, a flower cluster like this and it's got maybe, what, 100 to 200 little florets on there, mm -hmm. we have to sit there and pick off each one of these caps okay. without, without, you know, crushing the pistol without destroying and removing all the male parts. Yep. So that one, <laughs> I got the male yep. stamens inside there. Yep. And I got the female portion right there. So it's at that point that floret has been emasculated, as okay. we call it. <laughs> okay. Because they're they're perfect flowering or hermaphroditic. They have both male and female parts. And um, that's that's not always true for every grape. Some vines are strictly male, or, and some are strictly female, especially in the wild. In the wild yeah. So you have to take oh. off uh, the male part, and then you're crossing it with a female part, or vice versa. So what we do is, um, after we remove all of those, we bag it up. We put a bag on there, and I think we'll walk past one so you can see what that looks like. You come back two days later, and you can see the f like the female parts. It's almost kind of like engorged I don't know what the right word would be yeah, but you can really tell that it's really receptive to whatever pollen that you're gonna put on it and then we come in with petri dishes of pollen that we've collected from whatever vine we want to put on that one again cleaning your hands with alcohol and then take your finger and hand pollinate every single one of the pistils and then bag that back up so the grapes will actually form inside the bag because we don't want animals getting them we want to yeah. know that that's the one we made. Yep. Um, but these bags are like, it's a parchment paper almost like, so okay. the sun is getting through it. So they're getting all the sun that they need, but the grapes are forming in it. And then we'll come back when we harvest the grapes, we'll harvest that bag. And then October, November, September, October, November, we'll extract the seeds that are inside those grapes. And then those get kind of put to sleep for, for the winter. And then we come in March and plant those out. And then those are all our little babies. And so. those take, I mean, a vine takes, what, about three years to reach a, what they would say, like, wine quality, right? So then um, is... This is even slower yet yeah. because um, we're growing this from seed. Yeah. So it takes maybe an extra year or two for them to get established enough to produce fruit. Sometimes they, have they can to go into a nursery first before they go into their permanent location in the vineyard. Um, and in, in that nursery, they're getting weeded out for disease and stuff like that. That's kind of the first harshest um, weeding out process of the bad ones. And then what's ever left gets to have a permanent location in the, in the vineyard. So then all those siblings will be planted together and then we'll start evaluating those. And the cool thing about some grapes is that like Itasca, that had fruit on its first year and we needed to keep it on there because it's such a vigorous vine mm -hmm. that people were actually, they, they were excited because then they actually get fruit in that second year. So it's a, fa a little bit of a faster grape for people to be making wine out of. And it's really fun and it's really good. And um, But you're right, it, the quality isn't quite there in the first couple of years. Definitely, like in Germany, right, they don't even pick the fruit for the first couple of years. Yeah. But people do here, and you do get some very interesting wines out of that young baby fruit. So it's there, there are 19 questions that just came to my mind. The first one I want to ask has to do with the white little parts is the male, and then inside this is the female? Yes. Inside these little yes. tiny... And so, the, so the very tip there is the female. That tip. Like, and some of them, they actually have red ones. Some of them, they're yellow. Some of them, it's, it's very interesting how so they change. If I take... You can see I'm kind of tweezering those stamens off at the moment. Yeah. And now what's left is just the female, the ovule, you know, which becomes oh, the yeah. grapes. Um, that one filament is still hanging on there. That doesn't matter. But um, 
Yeah, that's okay. so the goal is that we're getting this flower cluster prepped like a day or two before it would naturally open mm -hmm. so that the pollen is not being shed upon itself so that we can bag it up and then come and with yeah. our male with the pollen and breed it or control breeding like two days later so that we can know specifically like for instance this is pinot gris right now mm -hmm. this plant and the, the flowers are blooming because i cut the shoot hard and then it forced the uh the dormant shoot to push out okay so the, i mean normally blue this is july right normally flowers aren't blooming now but pretend this was june when they're normally blooming if if we wanted to make this cross we could have prepped this whole flower cluster and then we could have brought on a hardy variety a hardy minnesota thing and then hopefully a handful of the children that would come out of this would be also hardy we don't we know do have, yeah. we do have crosses with pinot gris um, Pinot Blanc more, I guess, right? Pinot Blanc and Itasca or Pinot Blanc and Front Blanc um, is happening in the vineyard up there. So it's it's really fun to see what's what's coming out of this. When you said that you, you know, they get tested obviously when they're seedlings come or grapes from seedlings, they're being tested for resistance. How do you simulate? Are they like out in a nursery in nature? So they, yep, okay. we have a nursery so you're not simulating. No. A moist environment. No, no, no. They're getting, they're going through everything that we're going through okay. this year. And if they can handle this, you know, and they're growing really well, then yes, we're really going to keep them. If they're not growing, I mean, we were starting to see it today. We have some stuff that was like this high and other stuff that's like this high. So clearly those are the winners, you know, mm -hmm. like these guys, there's a problem. So it's not a great mildew test year because it's been so dry. So you're not yeah. seeing that pressure as much. But we are seeing powdery mildew come on, so that's kind of one of the mildews that comes on in a drier season like this. So especially if it doesn't have it, that's a really good, that's a good sign, you know. That's now when something is you, she was just pointing to the to the ground and saying, you know, there are some that are this high, and then she was pointing towards the sky, some that are this high. Those are the winners. Are there some that are going to the sky, towards the sky, but they're really vigorous and too vigorous for quality? So you're like, absolutely. Okay. And we, I think we had one specific cross. It was growing really well, but other, like it had like a bunch of lateral shoots and you know very bushy. And then that's something we'll be like, no, we don't want this one. We want this neighbor. We want, you know. So we're actually, what do we, what do we put in there? What did you say, five thousand? There's five thousand baby seedlings in there currently. So twelve hundred are coming out and Hopefully staying. <laughs> twenty, maybe twenty, fifteen percent will make the cut, yeah. okay. and then they go into a permanent section of the vineyards. So that's the whole thing about this 12 acres of vines that we have. It's in constant rotation. So yeah, if we, we have... We should walk around so they can learn it. Yeah, for sure. Well, one more, one, one more question, because, I mean, I, I'm the non-wine person. So I just, for some reason, thought there was grafting involved. Are you ever grafting? Yes. Like, so tell me about that. Well, much. I mean, we've done a little... But no, these are grafted. This. There's no, no reason we don't need for to do us it. to do it with this. So it's easier and more efficient to do it with pollen. Yeah, what we're doing here is we're generating, we're recombining the genetics, you know, naturally, of course, classical hand breeding techniques. But the kids that come out of these, I always call them kids because they're like kids, but they're seeds, you know, the seeds that we're going to collect from these, we're going to grow those seeds. They're going to become plants. We call them seedlings then. Those seedlings are struggling first in the nursery. If they're not phylloxera tolerant, for example, they will not grow to the sky, they'll be real stunty because their roots are getting chewed up by the phylloxera mm -hmm. laos, that is, that insect. Um, and that's part of what s 
segregates or separates those from the ones that can tolerate the phylloxera. So everything that's grown here on its own roots is able to uh, tolerate phylloxera. So there's no re reason for us to graft, other than we do play with it because we're interested in like creating a colder, hardier graft, graft uh, rootstock. And that rootstock, yeah, could help in that. And we do use a lot of riparia grapes, which is what the like California and Europe, they're all they're all what they're grafting onto is based in riparia, a lot of riparia. Because it is it's it, it's used to the phylloxera. It you know, it's they not affected. Together. They evolved yeah. together, yeah. They've evolved together. Because grafting if you if you usually graft like Chardonnay onto riparia, you're you're just you're just Growing another, you're growing Chardonnay, right? So you're not. But the roots are the repair. Yeah, yeah so you're not, you're not making a new grape plant. if you gra if you graft. This is free. Science. It's, yeah. Yeah. So grafting is like to to propagate, <laughs> yeah. not necessarily to cross. Okay. It's just to. We call it asexual propagation versus sexual propagation <laughs> for plants. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I when I was 14, I grew up in central Iowa and I detasseled. Yes. So yes. I'm familiar with the concept of male and female and like that not wanting certain pollen to be in certain places, but yeah. I mean, that's as far as I ever That's went exactly with it, it. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I did the same thing as a kid, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get a lot of people thinking that we're doing a lot of like GMO stuff here, and I think that's no, and that's, it's not. It's all hand pollination and, you know, it's, it's not genetic engineering. It's not genetic. It's not. It's <laughs> not yeah, this just, is what people did hundreds splicing. of years ago. Yeah. How often do you get a vine in the nursery or is it too controlled that is completely spontaneous? And like, do you ever get a vine growing and you look and you're like, oh my gosh, we didn't do that. You want to see one? Because yeah. there's a really big one right down there. And this one won't let me get rid of it. It makes me very angry. We've had it for like 40 years. Birds will spread their seeds around too, you know, yeah, so yeah. that we get these volunteer plants that <laughs> pop up from time to time. But even within crosses, yeah. like when you make an intentional cross, there could be foreign pollen that gets in there, like a small percentage. It could be like maybe five, maybe hopefully less than 5%, but there's always a certain percent that might be off. And we can usually de it's detect clear. that. Yeah. Clear. If you know the parents um, of these grapes and you know their characteristics, you know, the, the ampelography of those plants, like leaf structure, shoot tip, color of the leaf, all that business, you can definitely tell that, hey, this kid, milkman came by or something, it's not quite right. It's just... <laughs> but it's pretty, it's pretty rare. Yes, it's, it's pretty rare. rare. Yeah. When I used to teach and when I was going through sommelier school and you know it's it's not about learning more about grapes it's about learning about wine right but if we didn't have grapes we wouldn't even get to enjoy the wine so I, I always was asking as often as I could viticulturists like and learning that vines don't want to grow grapes to make wine they just want to go up to the sky and survive and be really prolific right yeah. so like is that one yeah, of the reasons they want to get their seeds out yeah, of course, of course. But so is that one of the reasons why when the, if they kind of pop off like that, it seems like that's a really open invitation for pollen to happen in a way that this is like, um, this meaning, you know, petals open and you have the middle and it's nice and ready for bees and the things. If you, if things just completely pop up and off, it's like open season for, does that have any sort of? Yeah, there's, there has to be a reason. I mean, evolutionarily. 
why they evolved to do it that way. So I'm not exactly sure if it's advantageous to do that. I mean, well, but like with the males though, like the males, male vines are incredibly showy. They're like, use me. You know, like they get big. They smell inc- like you can smell them from really far away. Like they're really cool. Like wish it's too bad we don't have something like that because they they it it's almost like they're like oh use me use me use me you know like that's that's what they're doing. I feel like they I feel like the grapes are kind of doing that. Like as a male vine out in the wild, you know, riparia Vitus riparia comes in the two flavors, male or female, and the male will just like prolifically produce a lot of pollen because it doesn't have a long investment for the rest of the season because once that bloom period is done it's done it can shed as much pollen and put all that energy and then the rest of the season it can continue to grow and get up into the trees and stuff but the the female vines you know they're a lot more subdued because they realize like that well i mean it's just a trait that's developed over time that they have a limit to how much they can supply as far as fruit so they're not gonna spend huge amount of energy if they're not going to be able to get those seeds all the way to fruition so nature kind of balances itself out that way automatically um it's really interesting i mean if the more you look into it it's just like yeah it's it's how things work you know we have a vine over there that um it's, it wasn't a great cross and was wasn't ever very hardy but was it two years ago we made wine from it and we the wine that came out of it was so good everybody liked it and that's ne- that never happens there's like six of us and nobody ever agrees on what is good wine in that in that judging but that wine was so good and, t- and then we came out and looked at that vine it was dying it was like this is my last hurrah i'm gonna put it all into this fruit and it, it's like it did it it was like oh my god it was really good and now like it looks terrible probably never gonna get any more fruit off of it you know but it was kind of like it was saying sacrificing itself sacrificing itself to put out really really good fruit and it did it was so good somebody was like name it immediately and i'm like oh my god you know but of course it's the worst vine we have so (laughs) and that's that's one of like the key concepts of growing grapes is striking that balance of stressing the vines just enough so that they feel like they should make their fruit more attractive because they might feel like if I'm not going to make it through this year, at least I want my progeny to get out into the world and go. That's That would be kind of the, the mindset of a grape, I guess. And, you know, normally, I mean, as a grower, you don't want to stress them to the point of death, of course, but the, a little bit of stress or maybe a little bit more stress is actually what brings out the good flavors in the wine. So a year like this that we're having in Minnesota with the dryness and the drought um, is definitely going to be a good thing for our fruit flavors coming this fall. So. You know, it's really interesting that you said, like, they really push just the wine stuff when you're learning, when you're in your classes. I knew a lot about wine. My dad traveled all over the world. He brought wine from everywhere. He literally went, he was, he went to Argentina, I think when I was a kid, and came back with a whole brand new suitcase just full of Malbec. And so I, I was exposed to really good wine really early, but it really wasn't until I started being out here and being with the vines it totally changed how I drink wine and how I taste it. And I can taste what kind of struggles that they go through now. I can, you can pick that up, it's, it's there. It's almost like the same, we're going through the same struggles. If it's really cold or really hot or whatever, that's really in that wine. And that's what's so cool about learning and, and being in the vines. And, and then also like 
you know, learning about the wines as well. It's, it's, it definitely goes hand in hand. And I, I don't really trust anybody who <laughs> says it doesn't because it's very important that you know what they go through and then how that, that wine ends up. So, so two, two questions to follow up or one statement and then, and then a, a question. I, I know what you mean. And I, I wonder, you know, I have friends that are in the master of wine camp and then I'm, I'll be in the sommelier camp. And I think people shouldn't even, and no offense to like my certification or anybody else's certifications out there, but I feel like someone shouldn't be able to get that sort of, those sort of letters or whatever they're using if they haven't, A, worked in a cellar, like using cap management and you've never even managed a cap before, right? Right. Or, and the same in the vineyard, we, we talk about stress the vines and the vines need to struggle and how many... You know, people say wine is made in the vineyard, and you're like, no, it's made in a cellar. But what is done in in the vineyard? So I think that that's a really good point. What what you're saying, I wondered. So, I work. In, I've been working in natural wine since probably about 2008, 2009, and I think the struggles and a lot of that. The question is going to be. I find that all the work in the vineyard can be the beautiful work in the vineyard can be erased very quickly by packeted yeasts, tons, excessive amounts of sulfur. Of course, a little sulfur is good. You know, you don't want the wine to, to become mousy or whatnot. You know, putting colorants or if, even if you're acidifying because the grape or the wine might be a little bit lackadaisical. Do you, what do you find are, you know, like additives that you would say are, are not good, but they're kind of approved in both of your minds because it, it does allow for the wine to all of this work in the vineyard to still show in the wine and then what are just no-nos you're like don't add that because that just doesn't work well for me it's sugar you go to any winery here and they have their sacks of sugar and first of all bleach is a big no-no in wineries they're always talking about it but they have their sack of bleached sugar Mm -hmm. that they're going to add to that wine and it i can taste it I can tell you, I can t- like it's immediate for me. I can tell you what kind of brand is it, it is almost like oh that's C and H, but it's it's bad because they're doing the work for you. <laughs> you know they're making their sugars and yes we've had some bad years we really have, but last year was wonderful. But people just like rush to pick stuff. They're like oh I've had it I've had it in the vineyard. So we're just going to pick this early and then just add sugar to it. Are you referring to chaptalization, like when they're adding it pre-fermentation? Is that what they're mostly doing here? They're not back-sweetening, Well, well they back sweeten too, so. Okay. <laughs> it's a whole oh, no. very it's not, interesting. It's, it's not everywhere all the time, it's but you know. It's not everywhere, it, but it's a lot of places. And it, yes, there's a decent amount of Minnesota that likes their sweet wines. Mm-hmm. I get that, but. Nothing wrong with a well-made sweet wine. I mean, else, living on the Mosul, I learned everything from like, the best bone dry Rieslings to the sticky sweetest side of that you could get with an ice wine or a TBA. So, but we have grapes here that do that naturally. We have Frontenac grapes that can hang in late harvests. It's wonderful. It's really to, cool. They can get to 30 bricks on their own so without sugar addition. But some, and I, I should say, chaptalization meaning you're adding sugar to grapes that don't they might not have enough sugar and in this case they're saying they do have enough sugar but to raise the potential alcohol so instead of having like a ragey 10% alcohol super acidic wine with not a lot of flavors you're adding sugar to then make a wine that's maybe about 12% alcohol the yeasts have more food but in the end you're still left with you don't have flavor development so you're left with like a a rounder riper 
sometimes maybe even sweet wine, but that doesn't have any of the, of the flavors, the phenolic flavors that I've developed. That happens when you have a particular grape variety that doesn't naturally reach like 20, let's say 20% sugar mm-hmm. on its own. So like, let's pick on Edelweiss, Edelweiss. for a little bit. Yeah. It, it kind of, it can get to 15, 16% sugar fairly reliably. But after that, it starts to get really funky flavors that almost get too uh, off-putting to be made into wine. So growers tend to pick that one early, and then that is one of the great candidates for the capitalization business. So, you know, it works with that particular variety, but that variety was never really meant originally for winemaking. It just so happened that people, hey, let's make wine out of it, this one too, and it it can work. It definitely is a great following for Edelweiss um, and Brianna and, and other such grapes. But, you know, there's... You can, we can work on that. We can breed things that are like, have all the naturally good chemistry components. You know, you hit the right pH profile, TA, bricks. Uh, you know, those are like some of the best three numbers that you can measure. Um, as long as that lines up with your, your good flavors and aromas, uh, and it's a very clean fruit, you know, you really can't go wrong. So, and I feel like you're talking about natural wines and stuff. That is a very nice and noble thing to do. I, I, I'm all for it when the fruit is clean. Mm-hmm. The fruit has to come in very clean to begin with. If that fruit is in any way compromised before you get it to the winery door, you're gonna have to add that sulfur way up front. You're gonna, that's gonna change how you can do it naturally because a lot of the natural yeast will not tolerate higher amounts of sulfur. So, you know, you, you're sort of like pegged. If you're gonna do cool natural wines, you gotta have really good clean fruit. And, Sometimes, some years we can do that, like this year we can have, I'm sure we can get that because the disease pressure is way down. But that also includes bugs, leaf, you know, mog, stuff that falls into the, the yeah. picking bins. People have a tendency not to clean that. They're just like, oh, let's pick it and throw it in. And then it, it doesn't take many lady beetles to uh, taint an entire batch of wine. What are they, two? Two could taint an entire batch of wine. Depends on the size of the batch, of yeah. course, but you know, it's... Uh, yeah. And there's sorting tables that can fix all this stuff. You know, if you have fruit that's coming in bad, I mean, it's it's expensive equipment, but there's ways of dealing with that too before you just push all this VA into the yeah. the beginning stage of the wine. I mean, a little bit of VA later on, mm-hmm. yeah, we can tolerate some. But if it's there, if it's, you know, noticeable up front, it's not going to get better as it goes down the path of, you know, I, we always think of like growing grapes is like, you know, you're bringing that fruit to the highest, highest quality that you can get it, and then we know what's going to happen. It's going to go and start oxidizing, essentially like rotting. I know it's going to say that winemaking is rotting, but it is, in a sense, you know, turning that fruit from a fresh flavor into a more uh, oxidated flavor and restricting that oxidation as well. That's that's a key component to a lot of this. You know, keeping knowing when to use oxygen and knowing when to yeah. keep it sealed up. That's those are all important things to prevent oxidation or prevent the other side where you can get reductive wines where it's too little oxygen. So sometimes a little splash will help. Out of the very popular hybrids that have made it in Quebec, in Vermont, in, you know, to some extent, New York, like Marquette, Frontenac Gris, Le Crescent, Itasca, Petite Pearl, 
this is a question for both of you, which do you think is like the most verging on noble, you know, that has the most complexity that you could maybe cellar it a few years and it would be delicious? We've had some really, really fine Marquettes from Vermont yes. that were amazing oh my, for I us. I feel like Vermont and is almost a better location to grow and make Marquette. I feel like it does better with their soils. And it just, it, we had somebody make one and it, you could have put it in a Pinot tasting and not known the difference. That's how good it was. I mean, it was really, really good. Marquette, by the way, has, uh, has Pinot as a grandparent in its lineage so and Marquette was developed here yes. correct yes. yes just for everybody at home that's listening to this in Thailand it was made here but it is incredibly hard to grow it is not a very grower friendly vine I mean we are constantly grumbling about that thing when we're working on it it is is that the pinot in its heritage probably it's it can be very messy it can be very ugh, there's just there's too many things and then it it doesn't have a lot of its own natural tannins so I really, I think they did an amazing job at that wine. They, it was incredible, but it's difficult. It's difficult to really pull that out. And there hasn't been many that have impressed me. So we're, that's why it's, there's something better. There's gotta be something better. The whole Frontenac family is very interesting, right? So originally it was just Frontenac, a red grape, yeah. uh, one generation from wild. The other side was a kind of obscure French hybrid, uh, Lando, 4511, right? Anyway, that that Frontenac was released, and it was, you know, it made a nice wine, makes a nice rosé. It's got high acidity, though, usually. Like, you know, (laughs) regular, if we're talking about, like, Vinifera Ballpark Winery uh, uh, acidity, we're talking, like, 10 grams per liter of acidity or less, maybe between 6 and 10, somewhere in that range. Wild grapes are at, you know, 30 grams per liter. And this Frontenac came in somewhere smack in the middle between like 17, 15, 17 20. grams per liter. So that's still <laughs> high acid. And you have to deal with that in the wine. And that's partly the reason for the uh, back sugaring, back sweetening and all that. Um, there's other ways you can, you can drop acid, of course, with not the tablets, but the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the bicarbonates, right? Yep. The calcium or potassium bicarbonates. So you can lower the acidity. But that usually drops out the good acid, the tartaric acid. And Frontenac tends to have a more higher proportion of malic acid, which is the more aggressive one that we feel a little bit more. Gives me a little bit more heartburn anyway. So all three of the Frontenacs have that little hang up. Other than that, they're really cool grapes. They're very productive, super hearty. And like as they've been in people's vineyards now, what has it been now, 25 years with Frontenac? Yeah, it was released in 1996. But it's really getting better. It's more complex. I feel like it's it's starting to build its terroir, if you will, um, in people's vineyards. And it, the wine that they're making out of it is a lot better than it was originally. So it, I, I feel at this point, it's almost a little bit better than Marquette. But, you know, this year we're probably going to have a real, some really great Marquettes. Yes. It likes it in a year like this. You know, it's going to be better. It'll taste better. It'll be more complex because it's struggling. What are soils like around here? Uh, usually a little too fertile. heavy, fertile, <laughs> saturated with nutrient, you know, almost okay. to the point of, yeah, it's great for corn and soybean, but... But we're, we've been using the, these vineyards now for one of its at least 40 years old. So they're definitely, like, depleting some of that, but... It's definitely, you know, a lot higher than what they're using, what they have for soils in California or, 
you know, France, Germany. We're making up for struggling in climate and not struggling soils. I, right, I right, hear right. you. Okay. Yes. One last note on the varieties I was thinking about is Itasca yes. being that one more generation away from the wild because it's, it's derived from Frontenac Gris and then another uh, obscure selection. Anyway, that Itasca comes in with those vinifera-like uh, chemistry points. So acidity can be under 10 grams per liter. Uh, pH can be in that normal realm of 3.2, 3.4 that winemakers can easily work with. And the sugars are also still right up there at 24 to 26 bricks. So it can actually make a little bit. And it's, it's been in people's vineyards now for four years. It's four years, right? And we, we actually tasted one and it's exactly why we released it because we made a wine here and we were just so blown away by it. We were like, we have to release this. It's very, it's, it's going to be like a game changer, I think. And it's a white wine, so it's not going to be something people are necessarily storing, but they can because it doesn't have those crazy like acids like some of the other ones do. We're cautiously um, optimistic at this point, yes. but we, you know, we know it's, it's going to do well and as a grower, not going to give the growers too much trouble. And and we, had, we did taste one that we were just blown away by. It was the best Minnesota wine I've had. Wow. Has anybody played with orange wines, making orange wines? With little white wines with a little skin contact? Yeah, pe- people green. do that with Frontenac Gris, yes. letting it on its skins for a little bit um, and getting that cold soak going on. I don't know all the ins and outs of making the orange wine. You know, how, much, how long do you let it open ferment versus keeping it closed? Usually it's between people sometimes just do two days and in, 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 in a natural ferment, you, you know that it's it's starting, but it's really slow. And then it can be all the way up to six months of skin contact. I know that yeah. Shelburne is doing it. Gris, Frontenac Gris lends itself to that because it's got this nice copper tone to its skin anyway. And when that bleaches into the wine, <laughs> it looks like apricot juice that's just been fresh yeah there's a there's a shelburne they have a one of the winemakers has a project called iapetus iapetus or something like that and he's making a iapetus yeah and he's making a pet nat orange lacrescent and it was just like he's one of our favorite people he's so great he's very like anal and like it's almost crazy but he wears a lot of flannel He's <laughs> <laughs> a so, perfect uh, Vermont person. So when you find one and you're like, we got, like you said, we got to get this out there. Like how, so will you just have, will there just be a little asterisk next to that grape for the rest of time that has your names, like as the discover, as the actual human parents that of the, the grape? That was the we actually got our, we're on the patent for it. Which one? Itasca. Oh, really? Or he is. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It's a lot of people involved. It's not like any one person ever. You know, it's, it's a group of us here that are collaborating. But like, so. we remember finding that one. That was one of those things where you're like, oh my God, it, it's beautiful. Like, I have pictures. I still have pictures of us, like, discovering this thing. And, like, when it was first growing, like, Itasca is really cool because when it's ripe, it gets, like, one pink berry, like a turkey, you know? Like, he's like, I'm ready! And it's so pretty. It's like, oh my god. And then that was the first grape that we stood out here and just kept eating. We don't do that. I mean, there's a lot of acid in these grapes out here, and it just, like, we literally use special toothpaste. It, like, burns your tongue, your teeth, all of it. But this one, you're like, oh, my God, this is a really, really good grape. So that was, like, our first indication. Like, okay. They will stop you in in, in your tracks, the grapes. When they when it hits all the right points in your mouth and got the right chemistry, it just stops you right there, and you're like, ah, 
I, this has potential. And next hurdle is going through the winery, of course, but if we can make it in the field to be that good, that's, that's a special moment. I imagine it's there are days out here where it's nice and peaceful and serene. I mean, it's peaceful and serene here during rush hour. So when you get home, do you want to crank on the tunes, or are you, or do the tunes sound we kind of? We've listened to bit... tunes all day. I have this sweet little guy. Boom. <laughs> yeah, it's a little speaker. We listen to music every day, all day. I, that's how I grew up. My mom was constantly like blasting music, Led Zeppelin, Heart. I mean, my God, we were yes. we were rocking out forever. Always music on in our house. So that's how we are. That's how I am with my child. Like. The kid was listening to Beastie Boys and, and Bob Marley and, you know, none of that stupid kid music. It was just always, like, really, we were always trying to introduce him to, like, all kinds of music. And it's really interesting is because right now our kid just wants to listen to jazz. He's like, I don't want to, I don't want the songs with words. We're like, what? Because <laughs> that's what made me think about it. Because in your in your text, you, you are a Miles Davis fan. I am, yes. Chet Baker. Um, I grew up with, like, Nat King Cole. Miles Davis, that that one song, it never entered my mind. I heard that I must have been a kid, and it just stays with me. And I I like I like need to hear it sometimes. It's one of those things like I just need to like come down. Mm-hmm. But we're always like my music changes through our seasons. You know, I'm listening to a lot of Bob Marley when we're out in the vineyard in February just to keep us warm. You know, like just imagine that this yep. sound is like a beach back here. <laughs> yep. You know, we got our mai tais. You know, but. It, it definitely is influenced by what we're going through, and... You're talking about the calming of uh, that song from Miles Davis. Our dog, who gets just irate with fireworks and stuff during the summer, we turn the jazz on, the nice, easy jazz, and she just loves oh. it. <laughs> and she is like, seriously, she's 12 years, she's 12 years old, and she's just getting like, cre- like everything's freaking this dog out these days. But you put that, you put her in a cold house with Miles on, and she's like, ooh. Is there any specific wine that comes to mind when you're listening to a favorite Miles album or a wine that you're like, oh, I wouldn't listen to that. I would never listen to that and, and or drink that and listen to Miles. I guess Miles to me is more like the spring, fall, like transitions. So that, that means to me like the spicier Tempranillo kind of things like I'm kind of transitioning into the reds I, we we drink very little red in the summer just because we're out in all this I don't want to go home and drink a cab you know if we do it's with steak or whatever but it's it, it's definitely for those kind of times of years but at the same time when you come in and you're just so hot and I'm just getting to the end of the day I, it might be whatever I'm drinking you know like Right now we're in like a lot of the, the the white wines, right? Actually, I'm really interested in a Viognier. I just want a straight Viognier right now, and it it definitely is because I want to like like mellow out. So there's a really cool Petnat producer from Mendoza that has is doing a Viognier, and it doesn't 
taste like the Viognier's that we grew up with that are kind of oily and floral and sometimes touched with a little oak. It's like, it tastes like Chenin Blanc meets Melon de Bourgogne. It's like got a little ripeness, a little powdery, like if powder, powdered sugar had a smell. And so, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. So this is... That's a, that's a cross that we made. Okay. Yep. So those are the bags that we use and then... So and we the took, sun gets in there and all yep, that. Yeah, so, so we took that okay. and put it on Itasca. Just to see what happens, just for Well, we're going to take that fruit, we'll, yeah. we'll the, the, the seeds and roll that out and see what happens. And see what happens. And Emily, just well, for I love it. I love that. This is hardy already. <laughs> this cross that we made is pretty hardy. It's a really looking, it's a beautiful vine. But we thought we would hardy it up again with Itat, just to really confirm hardiness. Yeah. Okay. Because we were worried that the carignan would decrease the hardiness. And it does. When you start adding vinifera to our stuff, you're decreasing hardiness. Yeah. So we're just really trying to make sure that that, and it's, we made wine. Did we make wine? We made wine out of that. Yeah, it was great. so good. It was really good. Like, vinifera, just going and making pretty. things just all needing summer yeah. sun it and was, just being like. Yeah. <laughs> but to get, you know, this is just a beautiful grape. And then you, these get nice and like golden colored. And then when it's ripe, it gets the pink bear. It, this, this is a really, it's a really exciting grape. So what we have first here is a La Crescent uh, 2020. This is produced from Seven Vines Vineyard in Minnesota. I'll just give it a little pour for everybody. Matt Scott is the winemaker at Seven Vines. Um, he came from St. Croix. He was at St. Croix Vineyards. He was at Chateau St. Croix. Um, but he's extremely talented and a really nice guy. Now, are the, are the grapes, is this La Crescent grown here and then brought over to his vineyard? Or are they grown in Delaware? 100% estate grown over there. So we release a grape and we send like cuttings to it to nurseries. So there's a handful of nurseries. There's one in New York, Vermont, Minnesota. They make more cuttings of it, and then they sell the sell those to the vineyard owners or the, the the winery owners, and that's how they get our stuff that we put out. And then the nurserymen have to pay a certain royalty, and that's how it comes back to us. So wow, this has got a beautiful oh my god aroma of. I mean, it is a little chilled right now too. So bear that in mind, but. So La Crescent is a beautiful grape, but another difficult lady in the vineyard. Um, what make what makes her difficult? Because I think some of us ladies we can be difficult. Yeah, it's no true. Kidding. She um, she has to be in the sun. You have to get those grapes in the sun, or it will not ripen. There's just no chance. Even you, you could have like the most spectacular vineyard, but if those grapes are not in the sun, they they are not going to ripen, and they need to be because then they'll get that beautiful like golden color. And then all those really cool flavors start coming through. So there's Muscat Hamburg in this one. Yes. And this was bred by Swenson. I don't remember the history. Oh, this was Peter. It's a really lovely grape, but the vine can be very vigorous and very vigorous in very fertile soils. We've actually seen canes from this the size of sugar cane because people put it in their, like, super black 
corn fertile soil. or fertile soil. Sometimes when you taste a grape, you can you can feel if the grapes are bigger or smaller, the skin is thicker, thinner, or like the whole bunch. Are the the grapes here a little bit bigger than like a Pinot Noir or a a little bit more kind of bulbous, I feel like. Slightly bigger than Pinot, yeah. but I wouldn't say as big as, um, not like marble size, not like your thumbnail or anything. Okay. These have really thin skins though, for sure. It's really perfumed. It smells a little bit like muskmelon, kind of like daisies. I don't know if I get that. Is that lemon verbena kind mm -hmm. of a thing? Mm -hmm. Lemon. Lemony? Yeah. Lemony. Lemony muscat thing, the fruit loopy. Lemon muscat. And it smells like it's going to be really minerally, and then it's, yes, not, yes. it's not, you know, which is interesting. Bergamot, too, but not, not, that, not that potent, you know, if it were kind of the lemon and the bergamot together. Oh, cool. Mm. It's really good. I, I'm a huge white wine person. I love red, too. I'm equal opportunity, but I'm almost always going to go for a white. If I had to, if I was forced to pick a grape, I would say Riesling is probably one of my favorites because of the versatility of it. We've talked about like white wines not aging so well and I think it depends on how they're treated because I mean, I'm sure you've both tasted Rieslings that are 50 years old and they taste like they were born yesterday. At least they still have the acid that, like, that was born yesterday, you know? It's like amazing. This is a Frontenac Rosé, again 2020, made last year. It's got both, I want to say Frontenac and then Frontenac Blanc in there. So it's a, it's a blender, but it's really cool. Whoa. Mm -hmm. The aroma first hits me like, um, like a strawberry and raspberry blend together. It kind of reminds me of like, um, like if there were such a thing as bazooka gum. Fruit by the foot. Yeah. Now we have here uh, 2019 Marquette, again from Seven Vines. Mm. It smells red, kind of leathery. Yes, that's what I was... Yeah. It's not what I was expecting. I feel like Marquette from Minnesota can have like strange like plasticky tastes to it. Okay. And I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's because they're growing in that really like organic soil. There's kind of lazy, you know, not developing their flavors. So then it becomes like this strange, I always say, I always compare it to like, like a baby diaper, but I don't mean like a dirty, I mean like the plastic yeah. on like a diaper, like a disposable diaper. Well, did he use oak here, oak chips, oak barrels of some sort? I feel like it's a barrel. Oaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not what I was expecting it to be. It's pleasant, kind of mulberry. Right, yeah, mulberries like. I feel like it could use some age. Scores and fours. Scores and fours. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank, Thank you. you for finding us. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Sommelier Jill Mott and me, Emily Reese. You can find a wine list and a playlist. You can support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. And we also have a link there to find merchandise. You can get a Scores and Pours hoodie or t-shirt, Scores and Pours corkscrew, or some stickers. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Scores and Pours. That's a great place to get in touch with us, DM us, ask us questions about wine and music and food. We love it. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Mr. Samuel Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Oh, the June, two knees. Oh.